Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Conquest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the TalkHouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. This week features a bit of a love fest between two titans of the indie rock world, Lou Barlow and Ben Bridwell. It's a cliche, I know, but Lou Barlow probably doesn't need any introduction around here, but here's one anyway. A founding member of Dinosaur Jr., he played on that band's formative 80s albums before not very amicably parting ways with frontman Jay Maskus. But Barlow found plenty of subsequent success in the 90s with Sebado, whose 1994 masterpiece Bake Sale is referenced in this chat. Barlow also, weirdly, had kind of a mainstream hit with his side project, Folk Implosion, and there's some very interesting, unexpected Folk Implosion news in this podcast that I won't spoil for you here. Barlow eventually rejoined Dinosaur Jr. in 2005, and the band has found a fruitful third life, making vital new records. Speaking of vital records, the prolific Barlow has also found time to make new Sebado music and solo albums in recent years. The latest Lou Barlow record came out just last year. It's called Reason to Live, and there was also an excellent Dinosaur Jr. album from 2021 called Sweep It Into Space. Here's one of Lou's tracks from that release. It's called The Garden. Sometimes we sway Couldn't have it any other way Now it happened Nobody's happy with it Everybody's living through it Must admit I get into it As Ben Bridwell points out in this chat, Lou Barlow has been making music in public for damn near 40 years, while the group that Bridwell leads, Band of Horses, is approaching 20 years now. As you'll hear in this conversation, Bridwell moved from the South to various other cities, ending up in Seattle, and specifically at the legendary Crocodile Cafe, where he played in bands and listened to lots of music. He loved Sebado, as did pretty much everybody then, and it was one of the inspirations for Bridwell to launch Band of Horses, which subsequently found its own substantial fan base. No surprise, considering Bridwell's passionate voice and fantastic songs. Band of Horses hasn't put out full length in more than five years, blaming the pandemic for at least part of that delay, but is just now releasing a great new record that feels a bit more like their early stuff, and they're about to head out on a huge tour supporting the Black Keys. The new album is called Things Are Great, and here's a bit of Crutch. from the very start of this conversation what a huge fan of each other these two guys are, and also that neither of them are very good at accepting compliments. Barlow talks about the magical moment he connected with Bridwell's voice. Bridwell talks about discovering the power of that voice. They talk about how a Camel Cigarettes tour brought them together. And eventually, Bridwell makes up his own segment for the TalkHouse podcast called Rapid Fire. It's a delight. Enjoy. Man. Oh my God, man. It's been great to reconnect with you, man. And a bit surreal, honestly. I got offered this kind of thing and it was like, who would you want to talk to? And you're the first person that came to mind. And somehow I got lucky enough that you actually accepted my invitation. I like these kind of interviews almost better than, you know, back when you're just like, you're on the phone for like yeah. five hours and like your ears sweating and you're like talking, trying to talk to somebody. The first time we met, Band of Horses was lucky to get this crazy little mini tour with Dinosaur Jr. Do you remember? Yeah, of course. The cam the camel cigarettes too. <laughs> <laughs> oh 
my god. It was like if they had come out with some new flavored cigarettes. <laughs> like the kind that you like break open and it makes it like uh makes you die quicker. Exactly. Oh yeah, they we, that was awesome, man. I was I have to say I was really psyched that we were opening for you guys. Well, that's absurd cuz we grew up <laughs> I mean, ultra fans and fanboys. So we just couldn't believe that we'd get to open for y'all at all, much less that you guys would actually be nice to us <laughs> and welcome us. I have a story about the Crystal Ballroom. It's like this massive old ballroom that actually has one of these dance floors that moves up and down. And it's a place that they probably had, you know, incredible shows all the way through the 60s. Just great history in that place. And it's a really great sounding room, but it's kind of huge. And they have the dressing room above and you guys were playing and it was kind of one of the more extraordinary moments I've had like where I heard your voice like and your voice was just you know overtaking that room but I realized that I was actually hearing just the acoustic sound of your voice and not the voice from the PA like your actual voice was coming up through the through the floorboards and it was like it was very powerful I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable but it was it was beautiful Man. and the power of your voice was so apparent to me then and I'd already I mean I loved the recordings and everything but the way that the, the way that your voice just sort of saturated the old wood in that building and the way that it rose into this dressing room and then you guys came you came off the stage and you you looked really spent like you looked like you had just been like through something intense and you were kind of sweaty and and kind of just and I was like oh my god this poor this poor man had like your voice was had just overtaken your body and that was really beautiful I'd like to apologize first <laughs> that you had to hear that that day but uh I I thank you so much that's I mean god come on man it was a good moment for me so I just want to <laughs> you're going to ruin the interview for me. Don't make me cry on a podcast. <laughs> All right. Speaking of voice, let's talk about voice. All right. I've been thinking so much on you lately and going through, I mean, your, your catalog is so vast in so many different projects. Right. I couldn't help but think about when I first started hearing you in like the, the Centrado stuff, it felt like home tape recorder type of stuff. I can't help but think of like how kids, when we're little, we hear our, our voices on a on a tape recorder, right? Mm -hmm. And it's it's the most jarring, like existential crisis in a way, where you're like, how is it that I am that person? Yeah. How is it possible that I sound like that? And I, I think a lot of your first recordings that I heard, at least, were like very experimental. You know, hold, you know, play and record at the same time, let her rip, and yeah. hope for the best kind of stuff. Am I wrong? I had a cousin in Dayton, Ohio, like all my, I'm from, you know, I was born in Dayton and most of my family lives in Dayton, Ohio. And I had a cousin who had a portable tape recorder and he, he did this, he pulled out the portable tape recorder and was just sort of messing with the button. So like he would just be pressing the record a little bit and pressing fast forward. So he was yeah. creating all these like, like these yes. sounds. And it was like, he did this really funny thing where he's like, you know, he just, he recorded it and just said that we're going to beat the beep out of Louie. And then they play, he played it back and it was like, we're going to beat the beep out of Louie. And I was like, oh my God. Like it was just, it was like he had opened a door for me. Yeah. And we and all, everybody, every family kind of had these portable tape recorders, these little ones, you know, there's ones with little condenser mics. When I got home, you know, back to Michigan and I got a hold of my parents' tape recorder. That was it. And I just went off. And I, and I just, I just, you know, I made crazy TV shows and fake commercials. And then I started writing. And then I, you know, finally 
I realized I could put like a plastic microphone because we had one of those eight track recorders as well. You know, the big kachunk things and that had, that had a mic into that. I was able to put the mic into my, my, you know, the classical guitar that I was trying to learn. <laughs> I was taking lessons on that I was terrible at, but if I put a mic inside of it it's, and it played it out to the speakers. It sounded insane. And, you know, by the time I got into punk rock and, and just realized that there were really no rules. You're ahead of the curve. Well, yeah. Weren't you? I mean, you're making experimental art rock before you even heard punk rock. I love songs. You know, I was playing songs, and but very short. Everything was very short because I, I loved the brevity of punk rock and the fact that, you know, I was listening to bands like The Residents and Ronaldo and The Loaf and these kind of crazy bands from on Ralph Records in San Francisco and that stuff. And then like hearing things like The Minutemen and was, I just knew anything, anything, a song could be 30 seconds long. And that set me off. And I loved the sound of my own voice, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I did it so much that I just, I started to really enjoy my voice and, and that was my escape, you know? How have you found that your voice has changed since those early days? Do you find that it's matured and found more depth? Has it found more range? I had a really good period, like in like the mid eighties, I, I guess, you know, when I really started recording my own songs on four track, when I was, you know, Dinosaur Jr. had started, I was experimenting. I, you know, I bought my own, I worked at a nursing home and, was getting like, you know, what, what seemed like a ton of money. I was getting like nine bucks an hour. So I bought a four track, which actually was very expensive back then. I mean, they were four yeah. or $500, but I bought my cassette four track. And then I started to like, you know, layer songs and I discovered marijuana, you know, and just, and then really, I don't know. I had a really good period there. Cause I listen to those things now and I'm like, I love where my voice is at the range is that I love my phrasing. And then life kind of took over and I just, I can hear periods where there was too much deliberation in the way that I sang or, you know, and I think kind of yeah. re recently, I feel like I've kind of rediscovered my kind of more of a natural phrasing. And, and I actually hear echoes of that in, in the very, in like my, the stuff that I started with in the mid eighties. So I would hope my voice is matured, but it's funny the journey it goes through. Like I can, there's certain periods of time, things that I sang where I'm just like, wow, you know, what the fuck was... What was, what was up with me? Why do I sound so goddamn serious? You know, I, I don't know what it is. I'm sure you obviously have recorded at home like a lot, but just the, the live exertion that it takes to kind of push, have you found that you miss that kind of bellowing? I do. It, it kind of relaxes me in a way that I don't even know that I'm aware of. You know, I think singing is such a, uh, such a it's so healthy. <laughs> I do want to ask you a little bit about your stuff because it's interesting because you do have a very sensitive voice like there's a lot of like a lot of nuance in it and you you but you do sing incredibly loud which yeah. is like which is really unusual for the for the how beautiful your voice is the one thing i keep thinking of is like when you sit around and write a song i mean and like i'm talking about the those band of horses songs the ones where your voice is so like the voice that's created between the band and your voice is there's just such this incredible amount of space created between them that gives the music like a pretty incredible scope, like for, for what we're dealing with, which is what, I mean, you know, like you're a guy that obviously influenced by indie rock and shoegazer music and this and that. And even for that music, which is, I mean, especially shoegazer, which really did expand the really incredible, like it really, the highs and the lows were really quite intense. It's like, even in that, your voice is... <laughs> It just, it soars without sounding like you're pushing it, but it is loud. So I always, I always wonder, like when you're just sitting around writing songs, like I would have to almost like be alone, like in a yeah. warehouse to do that. How did you discover that range of your voice? I've never known what I'm doing for one. Okay. I've always been terrified by this. 
if I was going to put emotion into it and reach those kind of the emotion that's needed to push, I've always been terrified. And you're right. Yeah, it's basically like a damn warehouse up in Seattle. I was in this like slow core kind of band, but we had a great practice space and the band broke up and no one was using the instruments. And I'm like, well, I've got like half a day before I got to go and, you know, flip eggs or whatever, work in a dish pit. I'm going to go down there and work for five hours and see if I can't figure out how guitars work and how pedals work and how to sing against or, you know, amidst them. But it's always been terrifying. And you're also correct in that as well, as it's evolved, you know, the band, band of horses became a thing and I would shut myself off and go to cabins and I'd be looking out windows and making sure like, you know, even it's the off season in damn Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. And if I see a damn car, it's a mile away. I'm going to think they can hear my ass. And yeah. I start getting self, self-conscious about it. Right. Wow. So it's really, it's been about the rooms that you sing in and, and a feeling of like being isolated that, that kind of has brought out the stuff for you. Yeah. But then at some point, Lou, I got to tell you, I got really sick of being isolated. I got sick of having to like go and woodshed in some damn cabin and like <laughs> sit and twiddle my thumbs and shit. I was ever more aware of my isolation not being a fun thing at all. Like it wasn't right. freeing. It wasn't freeing me at all. I think I've gotten lonelier as I've, as I've gotten older. I don't think I used to get lonely during those times, right. but I start to miss my kids. So at some point I got sick of it. And I, I think I started to learn how to be a bit more dynamic at least with demos, you know, I mean, it's all I'm doing anyways is demos right. out there. Like just learn to hit your range while exerting less force. I heard that on some of the later stuff I was listening to. And I guess that version of No One's Gonna Love You from Stockholm was really impressive because the original range of that and the force that's behind it is pretty extraordinary. It typifies a lot of what I consider like, I mean, you guys are, I mean, you're a remarkably consistent band, but I actually heard that. It was interesting to me because I really, I was like, I, I got to hear an acoustic thing that he did because I really want to hear how he negotiates the acoustic stuff. And I was impressed because it's exactly what you're saying. You maintain the range and the sensitivity in your voice without losing the emotion of what that incredible emotion that those peaks. I'm going to leave the interview if you keep talking. <laughs> I just wanted, I really wanted to say that, Ben. I'm sorry. I, I, yeah, I, was, I couldn't help. I was thinking, to, I've just been like doing chores and meditating on just you, honestly, and your career path, which is just amazing. If Dinosaur started in 84, that'd be almost 40 years. <laughs> yeah, I guess, right? I'm not good. I dropped out in like my second, ninth grade. I'm not trying to shock you or scare you, but band of horses here that I'm in, we're getting close to 20 years. It, it shocks me that we could have a life in music to be able to, to live in this space of creating and using our, well, I hope my best talents instead of flipping eggs right. or washing dishes. I'm so grateful for every year that we've been able to survive. You've done it with, with so many twists and turns. And you've been a master collaborator at the same time, whether it be with Jay or with John Davis, with Lowenstein. Like, how did you do this? How did you navigate these waters of being so collaborative and being pliable enough to get along with so many people and pivot throughout an industry that's very tough on people? 
my only friends are people I make music with generally. And which really complicates friendships because then, especially when bands start to move and take off and stuff, then it gets all fucked up. I bet. And it's tough and it's sad in some ways. I think with all, all those people, I always start, I always have this idea of like the potential, you know, it's just like, man, there, I'm always like going like, man, like when I got together with Eric Gaffney, I was like, man, there's so much potential here, but you know, he was a real interesting cat, you know, and had his own ego and he wanted to be a leader and I wanted to play music with him. So, and I wanted to hang out with him because he was fucking funny as hell. So I thought, you know, the first thing we would do, I was like, man, we'll just put our solo songs together and that'll become Sebado, you know, and that, because he'll be into that because then he'll get to say what he needs to say. And then, and I said, somehow during that process, he and I will get closer, you know, and we'll start to write together. And we did, we started to write together and we do that stuff. And we had some great live experiences and he was a fucking coolest shit drummer and like, and you know, and then, and then it, it dissolved because it was too complicated, you know, because then the band got, the band got kind of big and he got freaked out and, and I lost him, you know, I lost him along the way. I see. You know, but in the meantime, it's like, then Jason Lowenstein came along, he, he joined forces with us and it was like, he was a, he was fucking like 16 years old. He was like, I took him on tour as a high school dropout, you know? So he's like, Holy shit. Jason's on tour with me and he's kind of like my little brother, you know, and I'm kind of showing him the ropes. There's just so much potential in everybody, you know, and like musicians, you know, it's like, man, you know, people say it about art too. There's impressionistic painters and there's painters that paint great detail. And, you know, musicians are kind of the same. There's people that are just like these fucking like primitive geniuses and then other people that are the most you know, incredibly gifted. And so Jason Lowenstein, I was like, oh my God. And then he started writing songs and it was like, oh wow. You know, but my thing with Eric Gaffney had such a kind of sad ending as far as I was concerned, or, you know, just the kind of ego thing got really, it was tough to negotiate. So I'm like trying to play, I'm with Jason. I'm trying to like be sensitive to that and, you know, and then nurture him as an artist and let him be who he wants to be. And, and so he and I kind of hit a sweet spot where that happened. And then, you know, that all got complicated, you know? All my friends are fucking guys I play music with. And I started up a friendship with John Davis. And I wanted to play music with John Davis because he was made these bizarre, like, fucking solo recordings that I loved. And so pretty soon he and I are hanging out and we're starting to make music, which to me was totally separate than what I was doing from Sebado. But it took on a whole life of its own, which then became a threat to Sebado. Like, Sebado were getting ready to work on a record called Harmacy. And... And John Davis and I had just done, you know, the film soundtrack for kids. And one of our fucking songs became a hit, like totally fucking weird shit, just like totally random, not in any way, not in any way premeditated or predictable. I mean, it's, it was a song that we recorded and seriously in the space of five hours became a, it became <laughs> a hit. I remember I was washing dishes in a pizzeria and it was all over the radio. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I got Sebado still going on. I, you know, get Jason up to Boston to start working on the Harmacy record. And he and I are like walking through a mall together. And there's a Levi's store at the other end of this mall with an enormous TV screen, right? Uh-huh. And he and I are walking together and the fucking Natural One video comes on. So he and I did a slow walk. And we were probably fucking high as hell, too, at the same time. Walk, <laughs> did a slow walk right into the Natural One video. For Jason, I mean, like, you know, where I'm like, man, it's all about us and we're going to do all this. And then we're, I mean, it's like, it's just one of those like surreal, tragic moments, you know. Jason was like living out in Louisville. I'm trying to get him out, you know, to, to Boston to do this stuff and trying to, trying to, you know, maintain my, my loyalty to him and all this other shit. And, and we walk into something like that, you know, and it complicates shit. It complicates the relationship. It complicates the way that you then try to work on a record. 
the world always brings in factors that you know complicate things on an emotional level and when things are complicated on an emotional level it it does affect what you can bring to something creatively but john davis didn't exactly want to keep going at that point right when we hooked our little wagons together and we had that hit that was not something that he was prepared for we had a wonderful like emotional fucking creative friendship and it got complicated by that i had to kind of watch that do its own kind of like slow denouement you know like 2000 or whatever i was just completely spit up by everything all my bands were i mean like you know the <laughs> records were fucking failing and no they know. weren't i'm just saying that like the 2000s were an interesting time for me. I mean, that's when your band kind of took off because there was a lot of other bands I thought at that time that were great, you know, and like indie rock kind of took a really interesting, really very soulful turn, you know, at, at that point in time. And like the 2000s were like a, a real moment of like introspection and depression for me. I don't know. The fact that Bake Sale was a great record in 1995 didn't matter in 2001, you know, when the strokes are coming out. <laughs> like, in, I refuse to hear this. I'm just saying, I thought 2000s were like a fantastic time for new music. But I guess for myself as an artist, it then became much harder, you know, dealing with labels. They're like, we're not going to give you $50,000 to make a record, bud. Sorry. You know, it's hard for me to talk about that stuff. I don't like to sound bitter or salty or anything. You don't seem it. I love music and I understand the ups and downs. Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. Let's talk about both being sub-pop alumni. I came to Seattle in the mid-90s, uh, right around the time that Bake Sale came out. Right. I was working down the street from sub-pop in a cafe. Right. The Crocodile. You were working at the Crocodile? <laughs> uh, yeah, man. I started, I had a sleeping bag on my back and they hired me somehow. I was underage, had a fake ID and faked my social security number. You were just like, I got to go to Seattle, right? Yeah, well, I... I grew up in Irmo, South Carolina. I dropped out my second, ninth grade. And um, 
my mom was living in Tucson, Arizona, and yeah. I met these two kids that were writing songs, but I had a car. My dad like gave me a car to basically uh, sow my oats and go ahead. If you want to drop out of school, go ahead. Wow. And uh, that was my greatest asset. So I drove my friends around as they tried to make their musical career. I never saw myself in music whatsoever, except for a driver, honestly. They become friends with like Isaac from Modest Mouse yep. and Kathleen from Bikini Kill and stuff. And I'm like, dude, I got to go up there, man. So I get to Olympia. I'm like, nah, I, I made it this far from Irmo, South Carolina. I'm going up to Seattle, baby. So I got a bus. I didn't have my car at that point no more. But I got a bus up to Seattle and started sleeping on the streets. And I was lucky that um, I knew Isaac a little bit. And he helped me get a job at the Crocodile for at least my ilk. Mm-hmm. We pined for that culture so hard. You know, we listened to y'all. We listened to all these like really cool underground at that time, kind of underground bands. So to be surrounded by all that music every night, I was just like chomping at the bit. I'd watch people do their sound checks and stuff and watch how bands interacted. So around that time, Bake Sale comes out. And I remember buying it from uh, the Sub Pop Mini Mart. They had like a little like pop-up shop. And dude, it changed my whole world because I'd already followed your music for so long, all the different variations of your career. That record was such a breakthrough. Wow. I mean, I mean it, honestly, Lou, it's still at the top of the pile of a, a lot of the stuff I listen to. I'm not sure if you really realize it, but you're... <laughs> well, it might be good to keep you humble, but I don't think you seem very... Uh, you I don't seem to have a big ego. You made such a difference in the culture that was to come. That being like the Up Records folks, the Kill Rock stars, yeah. you know, the Suicide Squeezes, the Bar Souks to come, like all those labels up there that would kind of shape a different kind of indie culture that would spread out. Yep. Your music and, and Jay's music too, and you with John and you with Lowenstein. I mean, y'all really shaped a lot of what was to come and still do. In my opinion, you still shape my music. And I'm lucky to be here after 18 years or some shit. Like, you still inform us. And I, I think your catalog, your songs only grow like more, they're more sentimental and I hold them more dear. Wow, that's really nice to hear, Ben. Thanks. <laughs> My wife has been instructing me on how to take compliments. She was like, if someone compliments you, do not undermine it immediately by telling them why it sucks. One thing that kind of cool that happened during the 2000s when I was like, I was really at a low, I mean, I was low. I had this really, what, what was the realization? I, I, I was. I, it's hard to say what it was, but it was just kind of like, like, it doesn't matter. You know, I was like, somehow all of a sudden I was just like, you know what? It doesn't matter. I don't know what it was, but I just, something happened where I was just like, I think actually, you know, and this is, I mean, again, to tie it to like what I really loved about the 2000s, like indie rock, you know, like how indie rock to me became extremely sophisticated. And I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but your band band included, I just think that there was some stuff that was like, it it was like, okay, now, now we're talking like, we're talking some really fucking quality shit, you know? I think that what happened was that home recording actually became so much more sophisticated, like with like Pro Tools. Like, I don't know where you stand on bands like, you know, like Grizzly Bear and Death Death Cab for Cutie. And those bands were making like some fucking great recordings. I mean, like really good recordings. Agreed. And they were doing it themselves, you know. 
major labels were not directing these bands like, okay, now we're going to send your fucking song to some guy in Florida and we're going to spend $20,000 for him to mix it in fucking a half an hour for the radio. You know, like all that shit stopped. Yeah. And even bands like fucking Arcade Fire and like, I mean, a lot of people of my age or of my age are very ambivalent <laughs> to say the least about a lot of the bands that happened in the 2000s. But like, I was like sincerely blown away I mean, and also like the way that Sub Pop all, all of a sudden were putting out records that were hitting the top of the fucking charts and Merge Records were putting out, I mean, fucking in, in a band like Spoon, like what they did. You were like, holy fuck, like, like the leap in quality. And these bands were doing it themselves. And I have to say, you know, like as much as like I spent a lot of my time in the 90s, you know, being kind of like competitive in my own stupid way and worrying about, you know, and being in the Sub Pop, like, you know, hustle and bustle and playing the sub pop parties and trying to play to the right journalists and like doing all this shit and worrying Mm -hmm. about it and feeling like a failure after you sell. We only sold 95,000 copies of your record. What the hell? But I I swear the way the two thousands unfolded and the, I, I guess for me as a music fan, and then even as a musician, at some point, I just got so overwhelmed by the quality of what was happening. And then also, the older you get, you know, and the more music you listen to, the, you realize the huge tidal wave of music that is behind you that happened in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And how, man, you know, like, I didn't know that I never heard the first, like, I don't know what, or Steve Forbert record. And just generally, all of a sudden, like, you know, in the 2000s, like, my appreciation for music as my ego was like, shriveling and like withering underneath the sort of failure all of these sort of like commercial failures and things that I was being faced with all of a sudden I just felt like just just the the sheer quality of of music and the no like it all just hit me you know and I was like wow that's cool you know and I'm I'm just going to figure some things to to focus on and then the dinosaur junior thing popped up in 2005 and it kind of saved it. It's not that it, I wouldn't say that it, like it saved my life, but it took the pressure off. I was just like, fuck it, man. Oh my God. Now I can, I can just go play these old songs for a while and I can just sit back and I can take my time and find my voice again. And you know, at that point too, it's like, man, I'm going to, I'm going to figure out a way to get fucking Eric Gaffney back in the band. I'm, I'm going to figure out a way to tie up these loose ends, you know? Cause I, at that point, if you caught me on the wrong night or something, I, I could go off, about Jay Maskus and what Dinosaur Jr. did to wrong to me for hours, you know, and I could just bitch about all kinds of stuff and all these failures and all the reasons, all the things I could have and should have done and blah, blah, blah. But I don't know, you know, when Dinosaur Jr. came along and Jay agreed to do that. And then I, I went back and just, you know, of course, those songs just, those songs live in me. So that was the time when I was able to kind of re, just start to recalibrate, you know. And you guys didn't just go play old songs. I still I mean Jay to me still is a mystery. I don't know. <laughs> me too. <laughs> I don't. I mean, but it was kind of cool because I realized that that he and I had something so fundamentally in common that I don't share with almost anybody, which was just like we both music is like the most important thing. Period. It's like that is it. Music. It's like it's like the fact that you, he and I you know didn't know how to talk to each other or whatever. It's like didn't matter. Yeah, I really appreciated the fact that he was able to realize that and get on with it and let the music do the talking. You know, I just I know plenty of guys I've been in bands with great friends. They've been great collaborators and and they'll never talk to each other ever again. I've never been able to really just give up on give up on the idea of like potential and that there's always and like I feel that way with Jay, too. It's just like I still feel like we haven't reached our potential. I love that. 
I'd spend a lot of time just trying to figure out how, like what my next step's going to be with somebody like Jason Lowenstein, like our, I didn't think we were going to be able to make another record, but you know, we came back and made this record a couple of years ago called Act Surprise that I really like, you know, and I was really pleased. Me too. But again, even with all the shit that can go down and all the complications and stuff, it's like, man, you just, the potential in collaborations is, is just, it's immense. When two people get together or two or three people get together and decide to be on the same page and, you know, it's like cool things can happen. You just seem so vibrant still about what you're doing. And it, I say that that just bodes well for the future, for, for more great dino records, more great Sevado records, more great Lou Barlow records, maybe Folk Implosion, who fucking damn knows, like anything you want. I mean, John Davis and I got back, I mean, over the pandemic, he and I, he, I don't know what it was. I think we were like Facebook friends or something. And mm-hmm. I know, I mean, I actually know we were, but, you know, I whatever commented on his, because I kind of love how Facebook, like old indie rockers love Facebook. There's some pretty funny connections that happen within Facebook. All right. So you and John, have you guys reading like reconnected we reconnected in 2020 in the fucking depths of the pandemic he was like can i call you and uh we started talking he's like i want to make he said do you think we can make music together again i'm like yes and so we started this long we kind of started a long distance thing and then then he came and hung out with me here last summer and then i went down to durham and did some vocals on some song we finished shit yeah we finished a single like a couple couple of weeks ago we finished we did the final mixes for it I, I still like, you know, when I finish something, you know, like I get fucking psyched. Like, I don't, yeah, man. I love it. I love finishing shit. And I love listening to like the final mixes of way too loud and then just yeah. feeling great about, you know, like I did, you know, we did this and all that. I love that shit. I fucking love finishing music. How finished are you? Well, we, we just finished two songs. He came in July. We jammed in my attic for a while. He pl- plays cool, you know, drums and bass and shit. And, Holy crap. I think the last time we spoke was 1999. What? And there was, and I'm telling you, I was like, I don't know if I will ever speak to that man again. <laughs> or if it's the same person still. I mean, he's, he's a wonderful person. I've always, I love him. I mean, the reason that we had, we became estranged was like, it was, it had nothing to do with, with our personal chemistry. It had to do with outside forces and a lot of, you know, unfortunate, uh, just whatever. You don't have to say too much. I, yeah. So anyway, we hadn't spoken at all, and we reconnected uh, over 2020. And uh, yeah, then we started working on some tunes, you know. And uh, yeah, we finished them like two weeks ago. And now we're in the process of like, I don't know why we thought we should, could do this. I was like, oh, it's cool, you know. Like, we'll send it to X label, and I'm just gonna you can make it. <laughs> I'll send, we'll send it here and oh they'll just snap it right up and it's like no way like everybody's like no way we're not doing that <laughs> but then but you know what it's like that time is over you know i mean no it's not i'm just saying the time for me to like i mean worry about some label signing oh i don't know john is a he's a school teacher in durham and he's he's got some he's gonna fund it man. we're gonna we're gonna self-release <laughs> i'll tell you what if i'm a betting man i'm not betting against you because even one of the most enduring forces in American rock and roll that I've well been lucky enough to meet, but also lucky enough to be exposed to and to love. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't count it against you, Lou. So <laughs> if I was a label guy, I'd be definitely listening to those two songs that are done. Well, you know, I think they all probably would enjoy them. But I, I think, you know, releasing records and things like that is a very complicated process these days. So I don't... I know. Yeah, it's a pain in the fucking ass. Still. Pain in the ass. And uh, so anyway, we're like... 
Yeah, so Folk Implosion got a couple tunes coming out. I'm supposed to start a Dinosaur Junior tour next week. When are you starting your tour? You must you must have some kind of fucking crazy shit lined up, right? We're not talking about me right now, Lou. We're talking about you. I wanted to know. <laughs> no, uh, we we just postponed our European tour. We postponed it. You did? Yeah, um, but we have some American things that are get uh, announced Monday or something. So okay. I have to like shut my damn trap uh, about it. <laughs> hey, look, can I go rapid fire on you? Yes, of course. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Um, <laughs> this is rapid fire, rapid fire. <laughs> this is going to be the best interview they've ever had. Okay. Um, <laughs> since you've moved back to Massachusetts after living in LA for what, 20 years? Yeah, 17, but yeah. Do you believe that mass holes exist? Yes. <laughs> Do you still enjoy hardcore and punk rock stuff? And not just the stuff from your younger days. Uh, not on records, but I think hardcore, like live, is like it makes me crazy happy. So Hell I mean, yeah. I've, seen, I've seen a couple of like younger, like young hardcore bands doing their thing, like hardcore. You're like, and it, like it makes me so crazy. It makes my heart just like, like I'm like, ah! I mean, it makes me so fucking happy. I swear to God, that's like that's like my polka music. Do you still listen to? your old favorite punk and hardcore records i do yeah uh, I, played, I played the first meat puppet seven inch for my five-year-old a little while ago and she fucking started like jumping all over the room <laughs> hilarious i was like oh my god great so, answer people okay still rapid fire because i know we're out of time soon do you need alone time alone time alone time like when you're writing like i, I know you get interrupted by things in the house, especially when the kids, because of pandemic and stuff, like, do you need alone time to sustain, like, a writing? I do. I started to learn how to write while I was on tour. That's kind of a recent thing. I, so I do actually, like, I write I write all the time on tour now. Mm. It's tough at home, man. I got, you know, it's, it's, everything is, I mean, there's no consistency with the fucking shutting down shit all the time. I write my songs over such a long period of time now. I can't really sit down and go like, I'm going to write a song. I'm like, I can't, it's like, I can only write bits and pieces. And I almost purposely do that because if the next time that I sit down with the guitar, if I can't remember exactly where I left off, then it probably wasn't good. I can never pinpoint a routine for writing songs. It's always fucking chaotic. The one thing I do love is deadlines. I fucking love to know I got a deadline. (laughs) Then I'll fucking figure it out. I like your style. Let's see here. Um, Home recording evolution. It would sound like from your new record, You've obviously evolved with the, you know, the damn mechanics of all this, you know, technology. That's all fucked up, too, because I, I don't know, th- this last record I did, I did a lot of, like, you know, cassette Pro Tools onto cassette, cassette back to Pro Tools onto cassette back to that. Every time I approach that, that too, it's like, I don't, you know, I did stuff on the the new record where I'm like, I listen to like what I've done. I'm like, wow, I did a really good job with that. I'm like, what the fuck did I do? I have no idea. I don't fucking remember. At least with cell phones, I can actually capture, you know, what, what I was playing and the tunings that I had, because I'm always changing the tunings and I always fucking around with like, yes, yes, yes. I love, I love smartphones for that shit. I feel like we have to have like a two parter uh, (laughs) interview. If they'll ever let us, if if you'll ever talk to me, I want (laughs) to, I actually just want to know this stuff with your, your style of playing bass and the chords and things that you play that are just so unique. Was there someone that you modeled your style after, or is this completely out of nowhere? It wasn't out of nowhere. I mean, you know, Motorhead was around. I mean, Lemmy was, you know, just playing his chords and doing, strumming it like a guitar. I mean, 
The first band that I ever saw play live was a Motorhead cover band. I knew about Motorhead and then like hardcore punk rock as far as the way that, I mean, each band, each bass player attacked the bass in their own special way. We have a whole podcast dedicated just to this topic. (laughs) There was no rules. So, and Jay was really into like strummed bass. So when he, there was a couple songs like Tar Pit, for instance, you know, that's on You Living All Over. I mean, he, he wrote that bass line. He loved bass chords, and I mean, and I did too. So it's like a lot of the songs are either I wrote the whole bass line or Jay did or whatever. But, you know, we wanted the bass to be like, not like thumping around. Like it had to be fucking in your face. For sure. And also to match the force of what Jay was, was coming off of Jay's guitar amps. And Jay knew, Jay knew that. I knew that, you know, so that's where, I mean, the the style, at least the style that I play in sort of came from that. And, and I mean, but I mean, you know, he... Husker Du, like the baseline for Diane by Husker Du, it's, it's chords. Based on that question, would you ever consider starting a Motorhead uh, tribute band called Lemmy Indie Rock? <laughs> I would. If I had a lot of time, if I had a fucking, you know, if I had a lot of fucking time, Ben, I'd do all kinds of, <laughs> I don't have time. <laughs> Dude, Lemmy Indie Rock's a pretty decent joke, Lou. I would love it. I feel like I would love to fucking dress up. I would love to be Lemmy, and I'd love and play like, and I don't know what, what songs you would play. Would you play like Indie Rock songs, Motorhead style? So, uh, just a few more. Technical difficulties. Uh, live show. Whether it be Sebado, uh, Lou Barlow Solo, or Dinosaur Jr., like, when y'all deal with technical difficulties, how have you evolved with dealing with those, those challenges? You know what's so fucking funny about that is I don't know how long, decades of my career, you know, you want to call it a career, like we're plagued with technical difficulties. <laughs> plagued all the time. It's like, oh, we're going to play live on television. Oh, I, I just stepped on my fucking guitar cord and it came out like the minute the fucking cameras went on. I mean, like when I was young and I was nervous, everything fucked up. And now that I don't give a shit, nothing ever fucks up. Ever. I caused those technical difficulties. <laughs> my shitty attitude or with my nervousness, I'm, I'm the one who creates them. And the less, the less that I give a shit about technical difficulties, the less they happen. I was wondering if your temperament has changed as you've gotten a bit more older and used to like, oh, of course this damn thing is out. Like, who gives a shit? Actually, you know what? When it comes to home recording, no. I'm, so, I'm a fucking cranky bitch when that shit happens. There we go. I can't, I can't deal with it. Like, trying to get, <laughs> plug the right cord into things and then trying to get rid of buzzes and shit. I fucking hate it. Yes. I, hate it. I fucking hate it. I knew it. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm about done. Okay. So, uh, going out to dinner with the label, yes or no? Uh, yes. Really? Oh, I don't know. I haven't done that in a long time. But yes, I mean, if they, they, they take it, the, they, I don't know. I'm, they can't see it on the podcast. I'm cringing. <laughs> I mean, I, I've had a lot of funny fucking dinners with people. And then like when your label's being courted or whatever, like back in the like, mid-90s when I was going out to dinner with like fucking Seymour Stein and shit. Did you hate it or did you like it? It was funny. I was kind of the, always the guy, the only guy in the band that was just like, I don't care. You know, I'm like, you know, I'm not, I don't know. It's not us versus, I never really see things as us, us versus them. I just don't. For sure. If I'm going out to dinner with like, you know, exactly. They're all okay. uncomfortable. They're all uncomfortable. Look, Whether you can like, see it. It says like label dinners and then just like dinners. Like just going out to dinner, like being on tour and going out to dinner. I'm like, I ain't going out to dinner. I did a thing like when I started doing these solo shows that I do, which are like, you got to buy tickets online and like 50 people show up in somebody's backyard and I play for them. 
when I first started doing that, the, the woman that helps me promote them was like, you got to do these dinners. You got to go out to dinner with these people before you, before, you know, that they're going to pay a hundred bucks and you go out to dinner with them. And I was like, and I was like, I don't know. I don't feel comfortable with that. And she's like, you got to do it. And she starts rattling off people who do it and how much money they make. And I'm like, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> so I, and I'll tell you, I really liked it because I really did really like meeting the fans. I, I, and it was like a very sincere and very touching thing. And I really did enjoy it, but I don't know if I'm ever going to do that again because <laughs> dinners are awkward. <laughs> dinners are insane. Do you like dinners at home? Like, do you go out to dinner? Do you like going out to dinner? I, I do and I don't. I don't know how to explain that. I love meeting people. I love talking to people. I love meeting people. Absolutely. But, and I love, I love humans and human interaction. But, but get the fuck away. <laughs> and when I was trying to do that before I played shows, I was like, no, I want, you know, I don't want to be eating dinner. I want to be sitting in a room somewhere making sure my voice is like fucking warmed up. Or just not, yeah. Or getting like a selfie every five seconds instead of having a meaningful conversation. Okay. Almost done, I promise. Uh, cover songs live, yes or no? Well, yeah. I love to play Cold as Ice. Are you serious? Yeah. That's insane. It takes me so long to learn a cover song that I don't do it very often. I'm just not one of those guys. I don't remember shit. I got to like, it takes me a long time to learn a cover song. Anyway, but I'll, I'll cover like one Will Oldham song. I cover one Bill Callahan song. I cover... Can I ask you those two real quick? Oh, the, Will, the Will Oldham one is Riding, which was... The very first Will, Will, you know, Will Oldham song that I heard. Yeah. Off a cassette. Anyway, I think before he even put out a record. And then uh, Bill Callahan, uh, the song is a hit. And I kind of, yeah, you know, and I used to cover B-Hit too, which is a, another one of his fu- fucking crazy <laughs> tunes. And, I used, and yeah, f- Rat, Round and Round by Rat. That's a good one. <laughs> I love that song too. <laughs> it's got such a great melody. Got a great melody. Run to You oh. by Brian Adams. Whoa, I did not know this stuff, Lou. Those are funny because it's like if, if things get too heavy at a show or you want to start off the show on the right right foot, you know, you want to get people's attention, break out no some Brian Adams. It's Those are icebreakers. <laughs> okay, one more. Having kids and listening to the music that they want versus, well, you want them to listen to the stuff that you think is so dang cool. Uh... I just go with whatever they want. You can't fight with a fucking five-year-old about what you want to listen to. Correct answer, I you, sir. I told you this earlier this week. I was like, thank God I was listening to your music this week because it's the only thing. Like, no one's going to love you. That song is the only thing that wiped out. There's like, my daughter's listened to this, this LOL. These, these, they're these little dolls. Yeah. And I guess there's a cartoon that comes with it. And there's all this music that comes with it. Oh, yeah. we, have, we have to listen to the LOL playlist on Spotify, like all the fucking time. And so I've been for the last fucking two months, I wake up with like a 10 second loop of one of these songs in my head. And I mean, it's crazy. It's like when you wake up, it's like the darkest time of the, you know, three, three AM. Like yeah. All of my demons are, are haunting me. <laughs> And I'm imagining everything that can go wrong in the world and all this shit. And there's a 10 second loop of like someone like, 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 you can be a superstar. Nothing can stop you. You can be a superstar. Nothing can stop you. Yeah. Like just the, the, the dissonance between this, this fucking crazy cartoon music and the depths of like a 55 year old, like existential crisis, like combined. <laughs> Lou, I want to thank you so much, man. You're welcome, Ben. It was really, really a joy. It's beautiful getting to see you again, to talk to you. And thank you for letting me 
dive deep into not just your creative work, but just your life, getting to talk to you this week, you know, just being friends, man. We are friends, and I love you so much, man. Oh, thanks, man. Thank you for everything, and I'll always be here for you if you ever need anything. Oh, that's sweet. Thanks. I mean it. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast, and thanks to Lou Barlow and Ben Bridwell for chatting. If you liked what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform and social media service. Oh, and rate us, too. It really does help. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time. 